In this episode, can your twin brother actually make for a good business partner? And what the heck is optimization at scale? And then find out what lack of data quality is doing to not just the oil and gas industry, but to everybody. gas has always challenged technology. Now it's time for tech to challenge back. Come hear how the best minds in the industry are making those solutions a reality on the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast with your host, Mark LaCour. Hey folks, before we get to our guest, do me a favor, please. I don't want to have to beg for reviews, but this show is yet to get enough good reviews. If you want to support the show, leave me a review. It takes all but a couple of minutes, and it's the number one way to support this show and all of our other shows. All right, so today we're sitting here with our guest, Alex Robart. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing awesome. Before we get into it, I just want to say this entire episode is made possible by Flutur.com. Actions, not insights. These guys are doing some incredible AI work in oil and gas. Go check them out. There's a link in the show notes. So Alex, this is the first time you and I have met in person, but I've known your company for actually quite a while. And it's such a great story. Literally, y'all solve a problem that sounds very tactical, but it reaches the entire part of the upstream oil and gas industry, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you been watching us. It's been a, a bit of a long, complex road to get to where we are today. The you might not know the backstory, but the company's actually been around in sort of a, a similar but different form since 2004. But yeah, we're, we're solving a pretty fundamental problem around production, which you know has a, a big impact. And for better or worse, for some of our customers, is strategic for most customers. Yeah. And so for the outside watching y'all, you, y'all were a startup. Y'all got some funding. You got the attention of some of the bigger operators out there. And then y'all start sensorizing wells, right? You know, it's all about production optimization. Am I, am I right about that? Correct. So, so it's artificial lift optimization and using AI to actually optimize lift systems themselves. So if people don't know what artificial lift is, what is that? So for lay people, I describe it as just a production system generically. So the production system, the heavy equipment that runs the oil and gas well. Yeah, and it's actually interesting. I didn't really know much about artificial lift. I knew it was a way to get the hydrocarbons out of the ground, but I ran across this statistic last year, and something like 97% of all wells at some point in their life cycle will use artificial lift. So this isn't a minor part of the industry. This is a normal part. Yeah, effectively every well is on lift at some point. And onshore, every well goes on to lift pretty quickly. Onshore horizontals, you're Every well is typically flowing for three to six months and then goes to either gas lift or ESP. And then from there, typically goes to either rod pump or plunger lift. Yeah. And you obviously know this industry. You, you're throwing around the acronyms very easily, very comfortably. So what's your background? How'd you get involved in all this? I sort of landed in oil and gas, not by, by plan, but uh, it was a bit of a unconventional step into the, to the space. But uh, my identical twin brother and I were business partners, have been for I think pushing 12 years now. He did some energy work uh, early out of school, more from a, a management consulting perspective. We were both management strategy consultants for a bunch of years. I did work in automotive, uh, a little bit of aerospace with Boeing, some CPG work with Coca-Cola, a little bit of work abroad, and very little energy work at all. But he lived in Bahrain and Saudi for uh, a year, doing some consulting work in Saudi Arabia, a little bit of Oman, and Kuwait and was doing work for Aramco, but Aramco Special Projects. And he met a guy there who very soon after left that consulting company he was with and had built a client relationship with BP actually, doing some consulting work there. So we 
we ended up doing some contract consulting work with them. Um, this is in the 2000, what, 2006, 2007 timeframe. And that was kind of how our, our, our tentative steps into the space, consulting with them, with BP here in Houston. And then from there, you know, we eventually committed to the space and got really excited when we started digging in more deeply and saw this wave of unconventional horizontal shale-focused activity, first in gas and then eventually in oil. We saw all this activity and we saw a real gap in the quality of consulting as well as market research and data in this space. And so now that's sort of obvious that, you know, folks need better data to plan their activities, design their wells, et cetera. But we were probably a couple years ahead of realizing the gap in the space and the need for better data from a market research perspective. And so we kind of reoriented that business, the three of us, and grew it into really the premier oil field services focused market research and, and data shop. Very much you know, North America land, unconventional focused. I ended up selling that business to IHS in 2014. That's funny. So I come from a market research background myself as well. Actually, Modal Point started off as a market research company only in oil and gas. Oh, really? So what's cool about you coming from other industries, especially things like automotive, other big manufacturing, is when you, when you first came into oil and gas, you must have looked around and went, how are y'all making any money? Because there's so many yeah, antiquated processes and systems in this industry to this day. And that's the challenge of, you know, in the plant context versus the distributed, you know, asset context where you didn't have the technologies, tools out there and the, the communications to help drive some of that kind of manufacturing automotive process stuff into distributed assets, distributed manufacturing plants, which is in effect what oil and gas is. Now, you know, we have the tools of things like what we're doing and others are doing out there. But, you know, it's, it's really only been more recently where the economics of that kind of deployment made sense. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. I had one of the big service companies, I'm not going to say who it is, Big Red, took me about two years ago to show me their just-in-time inventory delivery system. Mm-hmm. It was a C can that they had dropped off at the well site that was packed with materials. I go, that's not just-in-time delivery. That's not how it works. Whereas automotive has it down to a science. 20 years ago, they partnered with their vendors and grew it together. So literally, when I'm about to run out of that last light bulb, my vendor shows up with that light bulb, which is zero defect, mm-hmm. right? And which the automobile industry's done for 20 years. It would be sure. so awesome to bring that sort of stuff here. And we're getting there. It's getting there. It's, it's step-by-step at, uh, upstream in particular is not great at process. Process improvement is not in our DNA. I mean, I think the, the nature of the cycles, price cycles, is a big driver for that. When times are good, people make money in spite of, you know, poor operations, and they're just chasing that, you know, the next barrel of oil or gas. When times are bad, everyone just shuts down, hammers vendors on price, fires a bunch of heads, but doesn't fundamentally change the structure and operations of the business. And so that's why today, where we are right now in this sort of range-bound world of let's call it, you know, 50 to 70 maybe, people are making money. You know, the, the good operators who've been smart about, you know, balance sheet and, you know, debt and everything and have good assets. And so there's enough margin there for folks to keep on focusing on how do I improve my business to improve my margins. And so this is really, I think, where this sort of a range-bound world is where technology is really going to continue to be adopted because it, it moves the needle on those margins. Yeah, and I think there's a cultural element to this new younger workforce is much more open to dealing with new technology, new process. Absolutely. And people won't admit this, but up until, say, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of the technology and process was in somebody's head mm-hmm. and was experience, right? And totally. You, yeah, and that's not quantifiable, and it's very hard to pass down, whereas this new younger workforce is coming in. Once we get these uh, new technology and process in place, it'll be much easier pass down best practices, best process, process improvement. Well, that's also not scalable if it's all in one SME's head. And that's that's exactly part of the big problem that we're solving in our production and lift optimization space is that 
our AI can optimize wells at scale. So we talk, uh, actually, uh, Chesapeake actually coined this term for us, optimization at scale. And so rather than being reliant on one single engineer who's really good at what he does, but he can't get to every well in your entire field every day. He can't get to every well in your, in your entire asset every day. And so you're so reliant on that one individual who's never going to be able to pass on all of his you know, 30 years plus of knowledge and expertise onto the 25-year-old engineer who's coming on site in you know, three months or something. And so our goal is not to necessarily beat that SME you know, on a head-to-head battle on a, on a well-by-well basis, but it's to say, look, we can take our AI and deliver optimization at scale across all of your wells and then have your best people focus on the most important wells, the most complex wells, but all the other wells that you're not going to look at anyways because you only look at your top 20% of wells. Let our AI take that over and you focus and high grade your people's time. Yeah, you rolled right into this, almost like we planned this, which we did in the audience. But let's talk about production optimization, right? So for so long, people guessed at what that was. And even though you may be really good at the wells, the 20 or 30 wells that are under you that are in the Utica, I can take you and drop you somewhere in Africa and you wouldn't know what to do because you don't have that experience. You're solving that problem with artificial intelligence. The AI is learning the best way to do stuff. Sure, sure, absolutely. And it's still in North America onshore today. Two-thirds of wells don't have any automation or any visibility, data flowing, you know, with remote control capabilities, with any sort of software. And so on those wells still, all those stripper wells out in the Permian that you and I you know, drive by in Midland and Odessa, people are still guessing at those things. And folks feel pretty confident that they've been pumping it for a long time, that they know what they're doing. But the reality is, is that they, have, they don't have any data coming out of those wells, so they're never going to be fully optimized. What we find out there, even on the stripper wells with no data acquisition in place or automation in place, or even the wells that do have the best-in-class sort of legacy uh, tech stack out there, we still find that only about 15 to 20% of wells in onshore are actually optimized. So major improvement opportunities out yeah. there. Have you seen this? So I, you know, we touch a whole bunch of the new tech that's coming in oil and gas, and I've seen some of the old engineers who are extremely experienced, nothing against them, Absolutely. look at the data and go, it's wrong. Because it doesn't agree. It's a confirmation bias. It doesn't agree with what's in their head. Mm-hmm. So what they had in their head worked, say, 80% of the time. When you showed them something that works 95% of the time, sometimes they don't want to believe it because yeah. it's different than how they've always done it. Yeah. It's incredible, right? Change change is hard. The people part's hard. The culture part is hard. But Ambient does more than just production optimization. You also have a hardware component of y'all's business as well. We do, yeah. So in, in our rod pump world where we started, you know, we have what, 15, 16 years of, of history in Rod Pump with still the best proprietary, uh, actually a 3D physics model to understand downhole behavior in Rod Pumps. And so in horizontal wells is where it really shines because horizontal wells have some very unique and complex problems, particularly a lot of friction. And all the logic that was built 20, 30, 40 years ago to understand what's happening downhole in a rod pumping system was designed for vertical wells where they assumed away mechanical friction. Now, that's great for a perfectly vertical well, but we don't have many There's of those no wells today, thing, right? Yeah. And so that's the founding history of that company. We, those guys built a, a, an automation package which looked really more like a quote-unquote IoT implementation than it did an, an old school PLC or RTU. They actually fused a Linux box into that old system combined with the PLC so they could run these high powered physics models on the fly in that system. And then we're sampling data at five milliseconds to power up that system and feed those algorithms and then moving all that data back to central service. And so we had this deep application expertise with still the best today physics model out there for rod piping applications, as well as this really high resolution data, which allowed us in the 2012-2013 timeframe to start actually 
thinking about, well, how do we use this data set that we have and replace some of the sensors and some of the big expensive equipment and lighten it up, reduce the footprint and the price on that thing and use AI to fill the gap there. And so that's, that was the beginning of the ambient path, sort of the modern ambient path starting in 2013. And then fast forward to 2016 is when myself and my twin brother got involved in the business. We saw the potential and promise of this, uh, this data set and the initial exploratory AI that had been done and the infrastructure of a piece of hardware in the cloud application and software that had been built so far. And we said, hey, this is great. We love what they're doing. There's a lot of things they've got to figure out in the business commercially. There's a lot of things they need to figure out in terms of you know, getting to the U.S. market because the Canada market today is still not you know, where we'd like it to be. And so it's still a bit of a tough customer market for us and for almost every vendor I know yeah, in of course. Is it just a whole bunch of things to figure out as a business still. And so we came in, we invested some money, structured a transaction to bring in a syndicate of investors alongside of us. And so that syndicate was GE Ventures, uh, Equinor Technology Ventures, who's been phenomenally supportive, Mercury Fund out of here in Houston, a venture fund, and then Cottonwood Venture Partners. Uh, you may have come across. Uh, uh, you're dropping the names of names. Yeah. Yeah. So. So we put that whole thing together. It was actually rather complex. And you know, a key part of the deal for us to put money in was, hey, we need to really take over operational leadership of this company because there's just a lot of things to solve to get this business really where it needs to be. So that's what we spent the last you know, two years doing is you know, starting to build a deeper AI application to solve for Rod Pump and now extending it to other lift types here. So back to the hardware component, was that done out of necessity? Was it literally like, I can't buy what I need, so I have to make it myself? Exactly. So full credit to the guys who drove this pivot of the business from that old business to the new ambient to kind of put the pieces of what new technologies were out there with this concept of smartphones, which we're now calling edge devices, combined with data science and AI and cloud technologies to be a few years ahead of the curve to say, hey, this is going to change the game. We can leverage these tools and technologies to do all of this stuff. And so we initially wanted to do it without hardware, just with customers' existing data. But we quickly realized that most of the data is not very good. It's not, it's not useful. Yep. And so that forced us down the path of hardware. We looked at the market to see what was out there. At that time, all these kind of generic edge devices that a bunch of the hardware vendors have, have rolled out, like Dell's of the world, didn't exist yet. And so by necessity, the guys started building their own hardware. And so it's been now six years, five years maybe, since we put out our first you know, kind of prototype version of a piece of hardware. We've iterated multiple times now. And so it's very much by necessity to build that thing. At this point, we've got the process, the manufacturing down pretty tight, and it's working phenomenally. And we're doing some some very interesting things at a price point that you know none of the generic boxes you buy from the market. You know, there's obviously multiple vendors touching it. There's margin in there, and so it's going to cost two to three x what our box costs in order to do a lot of those similar things. And those guys haven't solved. The big problem out there to solve is remote communications, connectivity. Right? Yep. In the plant, in a facility, which is where most of these edge devices are being deployed today, in experimental sort of plant applications, you always have Wi-Fi. You've got Ethernet. But in the field, comms is a major problem to solve. And so we've solved it in some very unique ways using satellite communications or LTE communications. But satellite really is the default backhauling solution because still most areas out there don't have great LTE comms. And so we have to use satellite a lot out there. And the cloud architectures that are available from the Microsofts and AWSs of the world, they're optimized around this concept of containers. But the problem is when you're on satellite, you send one container a month and you've already blown through your monthly data cap. Right. And so we had to do a lot of unique things to solve not only the hardware, 
than the infrastructure to move data back and forth from that hardware to our cloud applications. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've seen a bunch of vendors come in front of me and show me their products, and, and they understand the tech. They even understand the problem. They don't understand the real-world scenario, like you just explained. Like, I had a guy brought a great app for, for tracking drill pipe, and I go, you understand the guy that's on that well site's covered in pipe dope. Mm-hmm. He can't operate any device that's intrinsically safe. He goes, yep. no. Same with connectivity. Like, this is great. I go, there's no connectivity in West Texas. Does it catch the data locally? No. Well, <laughs> you need to deal with that. Well, even some of the number of the large EMPs have various teams within their larger IT organizations who are trying to put together their own little edge devices using the tools from Microsoft or at AWS and you know a certified hardware box from one of the other vendors who they've you know worked with and certified. But even those IT teams don't fully appreciate the challenge of getting comms out there. They don't have Wi-Fi. We only have we've only seen three customers with reasonable Wi-Fi coverage in parts of their operations. And so you can't rely on Wi-Fi. LTE will have some places, but not very much not everywhere. And so what are you going to do on satellite? Because it's going to have to be a big part of your solution. Well, satellite is expensive and there's a latency issue. So I get, a future guest on the show is actually a company that bought the cellular license and the Permian, and they're not even offering voice. They're going in strictly for a data play. I haven't talked to them yet, so I don't know how they're building their backbone. I'll I assume it's INET LTE. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I haven't talked to them yet. So I don't. If you know what they're doing, don't tell me because I want to uncover in the show. Top but, secret. Let you uncover it. But what I'm hoping they're doing is building their own microwave backbone because then they can actually go out and proliferate these cell sites. And there's a lot of money to be made out in West Texas providing good data connectivity because it just doesn't exist. Sure. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, everyone, all of our customers, they all want to assume that hey, I've got I've got LTE or 3G coverage everywhere, but no, you don't. You've got pockets of coverage and around the highways, there's good coverage typically, but off highway, nothing. Yeah, and if you think about what we do as an industry, our operations tend to be in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> they do. That's sort of the nature of it. At one point years ago, Halliburton had the largest fiber network in Brazil because they had to build it themselves. The only way they could have connectivity. Well, I think EOG will tell you that they believe they have the, I think, second largest Wi-Fi network by geography in the U.S., I think after the military. That's really cool. Who would ever thought, would I see it? Let's circle back to what Amy does. So I want to talk more about this production optimization because it's really a bigger piece of the business because besides just talking about increasing production, you're really talking about two things that are vitally important to upstream. You're talking about much better production predictions and you're actually talking about a much more reliable operations to keep lost time down. Mm-hmm. It's two things that y'all, y'all make an impact on that a lot of people don't understand, but you're talking about big dollars. When you have a well goes down or when you're not production producing sure. optimally, you're looking at hundreds and tens of thousands, maybe millions of dollars. That's, it's lost revenue along with the, the cost of working over that well to get things back up and running. And it's also, you know, from an emotional perspective, it's the most stressful thing that the production engineers out there deal with in their day-to-day life. And so they really want ways to better understand, well, reduce failures and then predict failures or understand when the risks of failures are higher so they can plan for it. Yeah. And we talked about this earlier, but other industries like the airline industry has been doing that for a long time, that predictive maintenance. Mm-hmm. Us, not so much, but we have the ability to do it. What is holding companies back? Is it the a willingness to share the data or is it the fact that the data isn't there? The data is not there is the bigger problem. And it's also the way you approach trying to solve it. If you come at it from a strictly statistical perspective, you can figure out some things in that data, but you're not going to solve the problem. It's really about integrating the physics or first principles of that specific application, whether it's a compressor or whether it's a rod pumping lift system or a plunger lift system or, you know, you name the, the lift system. You really need to master the physics first and then integrate AI into your data models. And that's, that's the way we approach it. And we believe there's a lot of Silicon Valley vendors who try to come at the space these days and say, hey, you don't need the physics 
all you need is my fancy PhD data scientist and I'll solve the problem. We believe that's fundamentally wrong and yep. I think we're, we're proving it out. And so it's lack of data quality from most of the industrial operators, not just upstream, this is across the board industrial operators, a lack of data quality as well as the lack of the right digital ecosystem to move data around and to actually start to make those connections and begin to deploy some of these modern technologies and, uh, and data models. That's just as big a problem as the data, underlying data quality itself. And then it really takes, from our perspective, integrating the physics with the AI, it takes you know, sharp data scientists, and there's not that many sharp data scientists out there, combined with the SMEs who understand the applications, working together hand in hand. And we often, as we build out our, our data models, particularly our models for, for set AI set point management, you know, that's where AI is taking over and taking over control and optimizing wells. You know, we work, it's an iterative process because machine learning is a journey. None of this stuff is just a bing bang, build it once and it works and you're done. You need to iterate model after model, improving accuracy, finding things you didn't understand the data before. And we actually use a human-in-the-loop approach for the early stages of our, of our data model efforts, particularly around control, because we're, we're iterating and getting more accuracy in the various outputs that that model generates. And then as we build more, more data and runtime and more set points delivered with a human-in-the-loop to provide part of that solution, we build the data set up. And as we build that data set, then we can actually use the AI to then codify that and, and finalize that model to entirely remove the human from the loop. And so it's a, it's a, it's a journey. It's not a one-time process. Yeah, and one of the things I've seen lately, a couple of things I've seen lately, the vendors have overhyped the buzzwords way too much. Things like that's, AI and machine learning, right? Oh, that's always the case, right? Every single new technology cycle, you know, we, we're, we're seeing the same, you know, whatever the hype cycle is or technology adoption cycle from crossing the chasm around technology adoption. And, you know, there's this, there's this hype, and then you, there's a, I think it's a value of disillusionment, I think is what it's called, when you know, the buzzwords get thrown around too much and then people realize that hey it's actually harder than we thought to actually create value out of this thing it takes more work to really figure out how it fits into workflows and build the applications and then you start to climb back up and start to really deliver the value and drive the adoption and we're going through that same cycle here yeah and you, you talked about silicon valley i'm not going to mention names but one of the biggest silicon valley names i watched one of their young executives in a room full of oil and gas leaders for breakfast shoot himself in the foot and he literally said we can manage your data better than you can which may be true but you don't tell a bunch of oil and gas guys that you can manage their data better than they can. You show them, right? You don't tell them that. It's like, dude, you're not ever doing business again. It's one of the things I like what y'all are do. Y'all are from the oil field. Literally, you have geoscientists and geophysicists, and you partner with your, your clients, you know, production engineers and everything else. Y'all are oil field. You just have technology sure. as one of your tools in your toolbox. All of our, our customer success team is all former production engineers across the EMPs out there. And they're also the SMEs who work closely with our, our data scientists and our product teams to define what the product needs to be, to define the workflows and the UIs, and really help narrow into what are the most important problems to solve and how do we validate the data science and also, to some extent, serve as part of the product in the early stages in, as that human-in-the-loop expert in some of our optimization methodologies. And so we're really building the products, the data models in particular, we're training them around our SME's brains. Yeah, it's really interesting. I had a chance to do a little uh, Googling on, on some of the stuff y'all have done. And some of your user interfaces for your reporting stuff is so freaking intuitive. Like, even if I didn't know what it was, it would take me all of five minutes to figure it out. I think that's a big plus in your book, too, where somebody oh, yeah. can just look at something and understand it. Yeah, our goal over the last year in particular, we've really sought to, to change the game from a, a UI and a workflows perspective. There's the, the challenge we face is that 
well, our customers are primarily engineers. And engineers, they tend to, if you leave them to their own devices to, dev to devise their perfect interface, they're just going to put every data point you can imagine on a page. And so our, our, our battle with customers, or a battle is too strong a word, but our challenge with customers is how do we get them to get comfortable? How do we surface only the most important information to them that's actionable and help them filter it quickly and surface problems quickly without throwing them every little data point out there? Because then it's too much information and you actually have to spend too much time sorting through it to find what matters. And so it's always walking the line with customers to push them a little further on, hey, let's actually, rather than adding more data, let's strip a few things away and let's create a more intuitive way to filter to things so you can quickly figure out what's important, what's not important, and let's not throw everything at you. Let's actually take stuff away and walk you through a more effective and intuitive workflow. And so we spent a lot of time thinking and talking about that and using sort of you know, quote-unquote design thinking and doing sessions with our customers to have them walk us through their workflows so we can think about, well, you know, why do you do that? Like, you know, what's, your, what's the root cause you're trying to get at? Maybe there's, rather than trying to solve that, you know, second level, third level problem, let's go a couple of steps below and figure out what's the underlying problem we're trying to solve so we can eliminate that whole inefficient workflow and get to a better clean workflow. Yeah. And that's once again, you're touching culture because that workflow might've been there for 20 years. And, and changing workflows is hard, right? It's, it's the hardest thing that we do is getting folks comfortable. Yes, we can deliver great results with our AI and our product, but ultimately if a, if a couple of frontline production engineers can't quite get their heads around, how do I live in your product day in, day out versus just what I got used to because someone trained me how to do it, you know, two, three, four, five years ago. If we can't get them comfortable that, hey, I can live in ambient day in, day out, that's a challenge for us. Yeah. Two other things, because we're getting close to wine out, two things I want to touch on. Number one is cybersecurity, mm -hmm. right? So just a few years ago, only the CSO and the CIO even knew what cybersecurity was. Now the business knows what it is because mm -hmm. it's an impact, business impacting. Y'all take cybersecurity very seriously, don't y'all? We do, yeah. And no, we've, we've architected our system to be you know, military-grade encryption on everything we do. So that's very important. And we're out in the field delivering remote communications, moving data back and forth. And so that's sensitive. Now the, the reality is, is is that the legacy you know OT operations technology you know SCADA PLCs RTUs that people have been using the way that they've solved security in the past and those OT networks has this been this concept of an air gap which basically means don't let that network touch any IT network which you know. It physically works because somebody has to drive out to the pipeline, scrape the wires off the insulation, right. put the alligator clips. Now the on reality there. is, is that it all touches. of these OT systems, people are connecting on the back end to IT network because that data is going somewhere to be done with with some application, some tool. So they've already broken those rules. Now, the norms out there and standards out there still is air gap is the approach here, but. Increasing the reality is this world of IoT and IIoT starts to penetrate and this IT-OT convergence is happening little by little here. There's some very thorny security questions to sort out about how does this stuff come together in a secure way. But the bigger challenge is the fact that most of the automation guys who've lived in automation in, in the OT world for the last 20, 30 years of their career, the, the, the new tools, IoT, it looks more like IT. And you use you know, code like JavaScript and like C and C++ in those systems, and those aren't the languages and implementation models that the OT guys are used to. And so, again, the biggest challenge here is getting those folks who are being held responsible with maintaining integrity and security of those OT networks comfortable with transitioning to a new paradigm, which is a set of technologies they're probably not very comfortable with. And so, again, it's people is the challenge here and getting them comfortable with, with transitioning from just what they've known for the last 30 years. Yeah, it's, that security thing is really a trip. It's 
as you move over to IP traffic, you just make naturally more doors for the bad guys. But typically, it's human error that tends to let the bad Absolutely. guy in. The Absolutely. target break that everybody talked about in the poor CEO who lost his job. Somebody stole the HVAC uniforms and they walked in the data center mm -hmm. and plugged in a USB drive. Absolutely. You know, there's no cybersecurity tool in the world to keep you from walking in a data center and plugging right. in a USB drive. Right? One more thing I want to touch about before we get out of here is your business process is different than a lot of other companies in your space in the fact that you don't try to sell stuff to companies. If there's an operator out there or an oil and gas service company that wants to work with you, y'all tend to do the proof of concept model where you figure out what the problem is, right? And then y'all figure out if y'all can solve that problem. I think it's a really cool way to do business oil and gas because it lowers the risk for everybody. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're trying to, as we grow up as a company, we have a little more confidence in the fact that guys, our solution works, our AI works. This isn't a question of, is this wacky new technology going to deliver value? It's a question of, can your team get comfortable and take this to scale? And so that's, that's how we frame things for our customers these days. We've got plenty of case studies with customers. It works. It works you know, in all the different operating areas out there across the applications that we serve. We don't serve everything yet today, but that's where we're going. And so you know, we work very closely with customers in a very high-touch pilot process to you know, baseline their operations when, you, when we get out there. And then over the next you know, six or eight weeks, let the AI work its magic, work very closely with those customer teams to educate them along the way, to talk workflows, to help them get comfortable working in our platform. And then from there, we've got you know, before and after, we've got results we can quantify. But it's a, it's a lot of education, because for better or worse in the world of production, there are very few engineers who are well-versed in AI yet. We're very early in that kind of stage of learning and education. And so, you know, us being, and a couple others being sort of tip of the spear in the space, we have to take on a lot of the burden of education, which we like, it's great, but it also is time and effort on our part. And so there's a lot of education to our process. We typically run a half day or a full day data science seminar for the team, you know, uh, half to two thirds of the way through our pilot process. Once folks have gotten comfortable with the basics of what we're doing and they learn, they've learned enough that we can start to build on top of that and really do a deep education. So it, it takes a lot, but that's, you know, part of the, the keys to our success and driving to a big deal. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the keys to y'all's success. I also think it's a competitive differentiator. I don't want to say you're hand-holding, although I think y'all do a little bit of that. The support y'all offer is just incredible, right? You want, it's not that you want, you have to have your customers be successful inside sure. their own company, right? I just think it's an awesome way to do business. Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to build, you know, internal champions and make them look great and deliver phenomenal results. Yeah, and, and y'all are doing it. So it's a point of the show where we get to our product review. Is please, people, quit trying to send me mud pumps and compressors. We're not doing product <laughs> reviews. I, I literally have s several mud pumps somebody wants to send me. We don't do those type of product reviews. Those it's are big, uh, big pumps there. <laughs> well, where am I going to put it? My yeah, living exactly, room? Yeah. Exactly. My neighbors already think something's wrong with me. If I had a mud pump delivered, geez. So what we're looking for, people, is gadgety stuff, something that you would hold in your hand, something that's kind of techy. And we actually have this really cool ring light, Alex. Have you ever seen one of these? I have not. So you do a lot of selfies? Don't Tell do the truth. too many selfies. <laughs> Me no. neither. I leave that to my wife. But if you did... Okay. Now I got good lighting for my selfie. Well, I'll tell you, my wife wouldn't, uh, wouldn't say no to that thing. <laughs> so this is the... Ooh, I can't even pronounce it. Oxua clip-on self ring lights, rechargeable battery, has 36 LEDs. It works on any smartphone camera. It's a basically a round ring light with uh, LEDs that you can vary the brightness to. I've shot some pictures with it. If you're out there shooting selfies in normal light, this thing's actually pretty cool. Now, I will warn you, you look uber geeky with this thing on your cell phone. But if, if you're into that, and if you shoot videos too, I shot some videos with it, it actually works really well. The battery lasts about 35 minutes. So check these out. If you end up clicking a link in the show notes, we make a few pins 
pennies off of it. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It's one of the things that helps support the show. And then at the end, listen for Julie for the events on decks. We're still taking uh, members for our street team, which is our whole volunteer unit. If you want to be part of this extended OGGN family and go hang out with us at press events and uh, conferences we go to in your local area, get some free swag, some cool t-shirts, join the street team. And then our travel sponsor, any place we travel, BCD Travel, these guys are awesome. If you want your people and your supplies to be transported anywhere in the world safely and security, go check them out. And then, like I said, this show is sponsored by Flutur. They're giving away this really cool Port Authority cyber backpack. So, Alex, if you want to win one, it's really simple. You go to getflutur.com forward slash podcast, or you can just go in the show notes and click it. Uh, what big thanks to them for their support. And this actually really is a cool backpack. I wish I could win one. And then while you're online, just go ahead and go to the website, uh, allgastechpodcast.com. Give us your email address. Promise not to spam you. Join the LinkedIn group. Uh, just search for OGGN. We're over 4,000 members there, I believe. Alex, this has been awesome. If people want to learn more about Ambient, where should they go? So our, our website's easy. It's just ambient.com, and that's A-M-B-Y-I-N-T.com. Yeah, and I'll put a link in the show notes, people, so you can either swipe up or left and just click. And if people want to learn about me, I'm thinking LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. Yeah, we all love LinkedIn. Microsoft's, Microsoft's making some good changes yeah. to them. I'm yeah. waiting for them to make the corner like Facebook did and start charging for everything. But right now, they're not there yet. I, I've been really impressed by Microsoft across the borders. We've started engaging with their Azure team over the last six or 12 months more and starting to, to work with them. And they've been, culturally, they've been actually really quite good. They've changed. It's a big change from where they were five or 10 years ago. So we have Microsoft scheduled come on the show to actually talk about Azure. Azure is everywhere in all gas. I mean, it's the back end of almost everything. And it's, the culture of Microsoft has changed. And they still, I still keep fussing at them because I keep telling them they need a, a vertical sales and marketing approach. So they need oil and gas expertise to sell oil and gas. And they hear me. They just haven't made that change yet. But Microsoft's doing some really cool stuff. It'll be very interesting to see how AWS versus Microsoft plays out in the cloud world, particularly in our space here. Oh, yeah. And AWS is coming after oil and gas hard. They have mm-hmm. a dedicated oil and gas sales team. I know those guys. And they're not taking any prisoners. So it's, it, you're right. It's going to be interesting to see how this battle shapes. And the truth is, for companies like yours, you just benefit. You get better service yeah. for better prices. But you pass. ultimately, we need to be on all cloud platforms eventually because our customers are going to pull us there. Yeah, and that's, so, that's you know, true. We have to work with all of them. Um, you know, we, we started with AWS, but some customers are pulling us to do something with Microsoft, and that's fine and good. Google will get there also because customers are going to pull us there. Yeah, Google has a big oil, actually. Um, God, I can't remember the guy's name. Bradley, uh, ex-CTO of uh, BP, is now running the Google uh, oil. Daryl Willis. Daryl Willis, that, right, right. Yeah. oil and gas and energy, yeah. Yeah, good for Google to see the opportunity here. We actually could use their help a little bit. Quit indexing my stuff, though, Google. You're starting to scare me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time to get out of here. So just remember, folks, we're making sure that you don't get left behind one episode at a time. And here's Julie with Events on Deck. Okay, before heading into the events on deck for July, I have a few OGGN announcements. We moved our happy hours to quarterly, and so the Houston and Midland happy hour will be in sometime August or September. Be on the lookout for the date to be announced. And we are launching our Denver happy hour on August 29th from 4 to 6 p.m. All the details are below. And now let's move on to the events on deck. We have the Argentina Oil, Gas, and Energy Summit 2019. That's July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. The link is below. Then we have a happy hour coming up on July 23rd. It's the Intentional Networking Oil and Gas Happy Hour at the Houston Zoo. This is hosted by Equilibria, NOV, OGGN, and Flutura. And a portion of the ticket sales will be going to Redeem Ministries, a local charity to help human trafficking victims. You can sign up below. 
Next up, Mark, Jake, and Paige will be speaking at the 2019 IPA&M annual meeting, July 24th and 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is Addressing Operators' Needs in 2019. Sign up below. The Desk, Derek, Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual Shoot for the Future Clay Shoot is July 26th in Decatur, Texas. Sign up below. And last but not least, Summer Nape is coming up August 21st through 22nd in Houston, Texas. It's where the deals happen. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Temp Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.